but really the focus of the letter is the gospel, as I've been explaining, that is the primary theme of all that Paul writes, and that is true of this epistle as well. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it expanding, it going into places where it had not yet reached. And that was characteristic of Paul's ministry, taking it to places where it had not yet gone. And it should be our experience as well that we take the gospel out to people who have not yet heard, whether that's next door to us or where we work or where we recreate or sometimes even in our church. People need to hear this wonderful gospel. It's such good news. We've been celebrating it. And as he wrote, he, he, he kind of focused on uh, three different things that they needed to be aware of. One was the danger of false teachers that were creeping into the church. And that was always a concern for all the churches uh, uh, by the Apostle Paul. And, and so he addresses that more than once in chapter uh, 1. He talks about it in chapter 3. He talks about it at the end of chapter 3. He talks about it again. He warns them of the dangers of false teachers. Secondly, he warns them about the, the danger of being divided as the people of God. Got a problem with Mike? I saw hear me now? You want me to grab a handheld? Good, good example, though. We don't know what's going to happen at times, but God always does. So. so he writes about the dangers of the false teachers, and then he writes about the dangers of being a church that gets divided, about a, a church not living in unity to the glory of the gospel and the glory of God. And he addresses that in chapter 2, where, where he uh, t- tells them that they needed to humble themselves and think of others as being more important than them, themselves. And, he, and then he says, you've got to be like Christ. You've got to follow the example of Christ. And Christ set the ultimate example. Then he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. We've been celebrating that. We've been remembering that. We, we're excited about that. And, and yet Paul is saying that that is not just a wonderful theological truth about our Salvation, it is a very practical theological truth that should shape the way that we live. And we should live in unity. He addresses it in this passage as well, where he talks about two women, notable women in the church, Yodia and Syntyche, in chapter 4, and urging them to get along. And in fact, he says, if you can't do it on your own, I'm going to ask someone else to come alongside you. Because this needs to be straightened out because it affects the, 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 the gospel. It affects the ability of the church to show the gospel and share the gospel. And, and, and so th- those are the two major things that he does. But he also talks a lot about having examples. He talks about Christ as an example. Chapter 2, he also talked about Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples. I'm, I'm, I'm going in and out on this mic as well, right? Good? I really don't like holding this and, and preaching. I don't know what to do with my hands at times. I'll figure it out, I guess. Yes. So he talks about uh, Jesus as an example, Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples, and then he brings himself into example that they are to follow. What do you want me to do? anything about a train of thought <laughs> easily get off off the, off the tracks I, 
kind of feeling like that's what is happening right now. But I'm going to get back on the tracks. No derailment uh, going on here. So he talks about these examples, and, and that's so important because in that he's saying, follow these examples so that you can live to the glory of the gospel Live to the glory of the God who gave his son. Live to the glory of the son of God who gave himself. So we're in Philippians chapter 4 at the end of this letter where he is giving some final exhortations. There are seven of them in verses 1 through 9. And uh, we've been going through them. We've gotten through four of them so far. That's right, four of them. And uh, and we're going to finish them off today, Lord willing. The first of those uh, exhortations, and these all flow together. I think you'll see this. Hopefully you've been seeing it as we've gone along. First was in verse 1, that they stand firm in the Lord. You know, that means stand firm in the gospel. Stand firm in the glorious truth of the gospel. Stand firm in the biblical uh, teaching that the apostles have given half of the Lord Jesus. They're speaking for him, writing for him. Stand firm. Now, why do you need to be told to stand firm? Well, because there are enemies that are out there that are attacking. So you need to stand firm. But he's not saying you as an individual stand firm. That's true. We should, as individual believers, stand firm. But he's saying stand firm as a people group, as a community of believers, as a family. Stand firm in the Lord. Secondly, he said in verses 2 and 3, live in unity. Now, the word unity is not in those verses, but that's where he talks about Yodia and Syntyche and need to resolve their conflict. And, and we don't know what that conflict was. It could have been uh, matters of personal um, conviction. We don't think it was a doctrinal issue. Otherwise, Paul would have addressed it. But it could have just been personality conflicts. Those happen in churches. And he says, you've got to get this resolved because it affects the gospel. It affects the ability of the church to share the gospel. So stand firm and live in unity. Now, we should know, if we don't live in unity, we won't stand firm. And, and if we don't stand firm, we won't live in unity. I mean, they're, they're absolutely connected. And that goes right to the third one, rejoice at all times. That's verse 4. Rejoice at all times. Well, if we're standing firm and living a unified life, we are constantly thinking about what God has done for us in bringing us not only to him, but to one another, to share life with one another, to live for the glory of God together. And that just kind of bubbles up in the joy of the Lord in our hearts. Rejoice in the Lord always, always, always. And he says again, I say rejoice and and and. Tied to that is this important phrase, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. He's near in space. In other words, he's near to us because he walks with us and talks with us as we walk through life. Isn't it good to know that the Lord is near? And then he's near in time as well. That is always the hope of the, the church has been, come Lord Jesus. He could come at any moment. And we want to be ready for when he comes. But we want to do all that we can for him until he comes. That is to share the gospel with people. And to live to the glory of the, of the God who gave us the, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So rejoice in the Lord. That should be easy to do when the Lord is near. And you know he's near. That ought to bring a smile to your heart. And hopefully to your face as well. And then the fourth one was, be reasonable, not demanding. And that was really verse 5. Let your reasonableness or gentleness or forbearance be known to everyone. And that's actually where the Lord is at hand phrase is in that verse. But again, they're all tied together. If you, if you are rejoicing at all times, are you going to be disagreeable? Are you going to be a pugnacious individual, always ready to fight with others? Word wars, quarrels, arguing, whether it's with unbelievers or with believers. No, you're not. And once you start doing that, the joy of the Lord will begin to dissipate in you, and the unity of the church will be affected by it, and we'll no longer be standing firm in the Lord. They're all tied together. So let your 
reasonableness be known to all. Don't be demanding your own way, which is the culture of the world that we live in. Demanding our own way. No, that does not honor our Lord, who did not demand that he escape the cross. He said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will. Your will be done. Not that his will was in conflict with the Father. He came to suffer and die, but there's a beautiful example for us. It's not about my will. It's about the will of the Lord. And we, if we are surrendering to the will of the Lord, we're not going to be demanding our own will, our own way, our own opinions, our own convictions, our own, you know, it's like, I'm right and you're wrong and I don't want anything to do with you if you don't agree with me. And worse than that, I might attack you if you don't agree with me. So be reasonable, not demanding. That brings us to the fifth one, verses 6 and 7. And you can fill in your sermon insert. And by the way, if you don't have one, raise your hand. Someone will get you one. We've been on this for a few weeks, so hopefully you have it. Uh, But we have some extras sitting in the back. So fill in your sermon insert. Don't worry. Be trusting. Don't worry, be trusting. I know, I know that you all would have already filled in the word worry because you read the verses. I'm not sure how many of you would have got the word trusting. I'll explain to you why I put that word in there instead of the word praying, which probably some of you did. So we read in those verses again, do not be anxious about anything. Hmm. Do not be anxious about Anything, anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So this next exhortation, this fifth exhortation, is where Paul gives us an action plan for exchanging our worry. And I would say we could apply any negative emotion. Anger or bitterness or grudge-keeping or backbiting or complaining, grumbling, etc., etc. We could put almost any of those in. We exchange those negative emotions for trusting prayer, for trusting prayer. Some people might be thinking, I'm sure none of you, but I'll just say it about, you know, other people. They might be thinking something like, well, that's easier said than done. Maybe all of us would think that at times. He says, don't worry. Don't worry. It's like, yeah, but I got a lot to worry about. I got a lot to worry about. Paul obviously wasn't facing the same kind of problems that I, I have. And the Philippians that he's writing to, telling them this, they didn't face the same kinds of things that we're facing today. Now, if you are thinking anything like that, um, it kind of shows that you're a little ignorant of the, the scriptures, first of all. And, uh, and, and secondly, you don't really understand the freshness of the scriptures. It is ever enduringly fresh to us. And it has significant impact on us if we'll pay attention. So think about it for a moment. Paul and the Philippians had ample reason to be anxious from a human perspective since one was in prison, chained 24-7 to a Roman guard, and, and the others were threatened with severe poverty. We know this from 2 Corinthians 8. And from persecution, we know that from Acts as well as this letter, and because they were being attacked from false teachers as well. So they were facing confusion. So Paul is not speaking of imaginary troubles or phantom anxieties when he says this to them. When he tells the church, or let's say us, to replace our anxiety with trusting prayer, he's not making light of our troubles. He's not saying that they don't exist. He simply knows that God is greater than all of our troubles. I mean, whether we like it or not, we, you know, we kind of live in what's been called the age of anxiety. 
I, I was told by a doctor some time ago, and maybe you've been told similar things, that a certain significant percentage of the drugs that are prescribed for people today are dealing with drugs that deal with anxiety, with stress. I, I, I'm constantly uh, amazed when I go in to a doctor appointment, this regarding my latest surgery, my knee replacement surgery, and I get in there and they're asking me all these questions about medications, about health, have I ever had a heart attack, you know, any kind of disease, and I'm almost always no on all of them other than just a bad body, and, and they will say, uh, how have you been? Have you been worried lately? And I'm thinking, what does that have to do with my knee replacement? But they'll ask several questions about that. Have you been depressed? Are you, you know, feeling any kind of despair? And I'm, I'm struck by that. And of course, I say no, and I mean that. I'm not uh, worried about it when I go to the doctor. But that—that's very common. And, and in fact, the doctor that I had talked to about this said that almost all medical conditions have some psychological or psychosomatic, you know, overtures to it why oftentimes you go to the doctor and you know you're sick and you will say well okay here's a prescription go pick that up and go home and rest right go home and relax why do they tell you to do that well the reason is because rest reduces stress and anxiety and 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 anxiety and stress worry it affects our immune system so we can't fight a disease off as well. And as, as I thought through that, I thought, wow, what a message for today in a world that is living in fear, particularly regarding COVID. COVID attacks our bodies, and particularly those with poor immune systems, right? It's worse on those with poor immunity in their in their bodies and how many of our bodies have poor immunity before we ever catch covid because we're worried about catching covid we are despairing we're anxious we're we're just like what's going to happen what's going to happen in our world what's going to happen with my family and the more we worry the more our immunity gets affected and the more likely we would be facing more severe effects if we did catch COVID. If you look in a dictionary or, or some book deal, uh, dealing with anxiety, you'll find a definition that's something like this. Anxiety is an inner feeling of apprehension, uneasiness, concern, worry, or dread that a person experiences, now listen, in the face of an impending threat or danger, or what may happen in the future. That's like our world. What's going to happen in the future? What's going to happen politically? What's going to happen economically? What's going to happen uh, physically? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? And we think of it as a threat or a danger to us. That is what anxiety is. Now, the usual Greek term in the New Testament for anxiety anxiety is merimanao, and, and the basic idea of this word, which is used for both positive and negative concern about something, is this, to be drawn in different directions or distracted. Get that? Basic meaning of this word is to be drawn in different directions or distracted. So that which distracts, it, distracts us, draws us away, so to speak, often causes us to be concerned, to be worried, or to have anxiety. Hmm. And this fits the description that was given by one, which says, Worry is a small trickle of fear that meanders through the mind until it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts are drained. That's quite a picture, isn't it? Worry, let me read it again. Worry is a small trickle. It starts out as a small thing turns to fear, and that fear it begins to meander through our minds until it cuts into a channel 
which all thoughts are then drained into. It's like it funnels it into this. And I thought, don't you find that to be true? When you think about being worried, when you're worried about something that may happen, you find that no matter what you're doing, what you're supposed to be thinking about, what you're supposed to be focused on, can quickly go away, can quickly turn to this funneling of fear, worry, anxiety. You might be a person who's worried about things, and and then, you know, you think... And I need to go to bed, stop thinking about this. And as soon as your head hits the pillow, you can't sleep because all your thoughts are draining into that. It's funneling into that. And you say, no, no, focus. And so you begin to pray for someone or some need. And before you know it, you're thinking right back there about what's going to happen in the future. And you find yourself worrying. I mean, that's just so common. It's, it's like no matter what we're thinking about it, our thoughts go into this chute that you know, funnels every in, everything, everything that we're facing or doing, and it goes into this, and that's all we are thinking about. I mean, you can find, you know what I need to do? I need to read the Bible. You know I'm anxious, I need to read the Bible. And so you pick the Bible and you start reading. And you read a chapter and you think, I don't. I can't remember a thing that I just read, because I was thinking about what I'm fearful of, what I'm worried about. It's just so very common. Now, anxiety in a negative sense, you know, which is seen as fret or worry, etc., uh, when we is when we turn from God. I mean, that's the truth. We turn from God and we shift the burdens of life onto ourselves, and we assume it at least by our attitudes and our actions, that we, are, we alone are responsible for handling what is going to come our way that we're worried about. Instead of trusting God in his power, his wisdom, his goodness, his kindness, his providence, we, we slip into self-reliance. And then we be, begin to be preoccupied with our own schemes for handling whatever may come our way. You think about it. You may think it's like, well, if this happens, I'll do this. And if this happens, I'll do that. And if this person says that, this is how I'll respond. I've sat down in, in sessions with people where the 30 minutes of what's going to happen, they already have it planned out, even though they don't know what's going to happen. It's their strategy, their schemes. We let those things distract us to the point where we begin to worry or fret. So, what's the, what's the alternative to being a worrywart? You know, being a person who's angry all the time, or despairing, and, and, and someone that's constantly disappointed, and, and struggling with other such negative emotions. I mean, how are we supposed to balance, you know, our world when we live in such a, a world where everything's heaving around us in situations, and it, it creates, it seems like it creates anxiety. Are we really supposed to be people who do not cling to our deep and dark emotions? Are we simply to deny how we feel? Paul would tell us, as well as the rest of Scripture, would tell us that we shouldn't deny what we're feeling. We should exchange what we're feeling for something better, for something wonderful. Something that comes from God when we go to him in prayer. We're not to deny things. But what we are to do is go to him in trusting prayer. And that's what it says in the text. In everything. So don't worry in anything. But in everything. So that's inclusive as well, right? Don't worry about anything. But in everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So, in doing so, what we're doing is we're expressing that we believe that God not only exists and that he's the rewarder of those who seek him, but that he is greater and that the greatest problem that we face, he can deal with and he will answer our prayer. Now, from his own personal experience, and maybe yours too, 
Paul learned that the way to be anxious about nothing was to pray about everything. You've all heard that phrase before, right? The way to be anxious about nothing is to pray about everything. Yeah, it sounds so trite. But it's true. That's exactly right. It is true. We are to pray about everything. Paul's saying that prayer is really, truly a conversation where we know that the one true God is hearing us, he knows us, he understands us, he cares about us, and he is responding to the concerns that we would otherwise let sink us into dark despair. Is that how you think of prayer? An actual conversation with the God who can? hope you do. But notice in the text, this trusting prayer is to be accompanied with thanksgiving, right? But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And, and I don't, I'm sure you picked up on it, there are three words for prayer in there. Prayer and uh, supplication and, and request. Now some people think, or there are different Greek words, and some people think, well, that's a big deal. You should make sure you find out what all those words mean so you can pick up all the intricate, you know, facets of prayer. And I, I've done those studies, and to be honest with you, there's not a lot of distinction that can be made between the words. And I don't think Paul's actually making a distinction. I think he uses three words for, for prayer to stress that we need to go to God in prayer. And we need to go to him in prayer with thanksgiving in our heart. So not only are we to pray, but we are to pray with an attitude of thanksgiving or gratitude. That's oftentimes heard, pray with an attitude of gratitude, right? And again, it sounds so trite, and it's an overused statement, but it is true nonetheless. So the end of anxiety and anger and discontentment and despair and other such things comes with the beginning, with the beginning of a thankful prayer life. Such thankfulness that God is working in and through us and knows what we are facing is the result of a belief in the person and the character of God who is able to do what would otherwise be impossible for us to do. It requires trust in the one who is trustworthy. So Paul then states a beautiful promise for those who actually do this. They exchange their dark emotions for trusting prayer. And the promise is that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will be ours. It will be ours. You might be surprised at what I'm going to say. This phrase, the peace of God, is found only here in the New Testament. Wait a minute, I know that the New Testament talks about the peace, peace, peace of God. Yeah, yeah, it does. It talks about peace with God. Like Romans 5, 1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the peace that comes of knowing that we're no longer his enemy, that we're no longer helpless, that we're no longer irreconcilable, we're no longer, you know, at odds with God. It's peace with God. And there's peace with God, which then brings peace with people. That's Ephesians 2. We get Christ and we get peace with God from whom we were alienated and we were without hope because we didn't know him. But we also get peace with one another, with people that would otherwise we'd be at odds with. Again, that's our world people not at peace with others, but at war with others. This is the only place, the only place in the New Testament where it talks about the peace of God. The peace of God. And So the meaning is that when we pray with thankfulness in our hearts, we will experience the tranquility the, and the calmness that characterizes God himself. Get that? That's pretty exciting. That's a pretty exciting promise. When we pray, trust in God, we get God's peace. 
his peace. Now, so let me ask you, can you even imagine God ever fretting or being anxious or being despairing about what will happen in the future? Of course not. Not if you know God. Not if you know what God is like. I mean, God never worries because he not only knows what will take place, but he also is the one that makes it take place. Right? Why would God worry when he knows what will happen and he makes it happen because it's his plans and purposes that he wants to fulfill? You might be thinking, yeah, but I don't know what will happen. And I don't have the power to make things happen. Although when we worry and we begin to assume new strategies where we can figure things out on how to address the things that are causing us to worry, isn't that what we are essentially doing? We're saying, I'm like God. I can make it happen. And that will just lead to more worry. No. There's no worries with God. Uh, there, there need, need be no worries for us who are the children of God. We don't have to know what's going to happen. We know the one who makes it happen. Right? You've heard that phrase again. It's like, I don't know what my future holds, but I know the one who holds my future. That's the very thing. That's the very thing. We pray with confidence and trust in God about what is causing us anxiety. We don't deny that that's how we've been, you know, feeling. But we go to God and we, we let the peace of God wash over us. Washes over us and it takes away that anxiety. And Paul says that this peace of God which is given to us is such that it surpasses all understanding. So this is a peace that rises above our anxieties. That's the word surpassing. Uh, it's a long Greek word that basically means this, over and above. And in, the, in this sense, what it's saying is that the peace of God, which we can't figure out because we're not God, we don't know everything, we can't make things happen, right? That peace that belongs to God becomes ours and it it's something that rules over our anxieties, our anger, our despair, our discomfort. It rules over that. It surpasses it. We can't figure it out. But God has given it to us. Man, that is just so awesome. I mean, that is awesome. It is a peace that is immeasurably better than the results of human planning. It outdoes the results that come from us, schemes for security, and it outdoes the intellectual rationalizing that we may do to try to get away from the stress that we are experiencing. And it is a peace, Paul says, that will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Get that? Notice the last part of that phrase. Guards our hearts and minds where? In Christ Jesus. So this is something that only belongs to believers. And by the way, it belongs to every believer who will trust God in prayer. Because if you're in Christ, this is a promise given to you. And given to us as a church. It will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So it guards our emotional center. And it guards our intellectual center our hearts and our minds. Those things that then determine how we live, right? Our hearts and our minds. It guards those things. And the word guard that is used here, phureo, uh, was a military term. And, and it picture, is picturing God's peace as a detachment of soldiers standing guard during our times when we are being attacked or being assailed by Stress, despair, anxiety, bitterness, those negative emotions. They're like arrows being shot by the evil one at us. And God's peace is standing guard over us. So that those arrows cannot penetrate into our hearts and into our minds. God's peace will garrison our deepest feelings and our understanding of the events that we are encountering. 
pretty awesome promise. So let's just click back for a moment. So we must rejoice instead of carrying around those negative emotions. We must also be reasonable instead of demanding because we know the Lord is near to us. And we must exchange our negative emotions for thankful and trusting prayer. This is a pretty good action plan. If we do those things, then we will live in unity and we'll be standing firm in the Lord. Wait, we have two more exhortations. It won't take me as long to talk about. The next one, if you're filling in your insert, verse 8, I'd love to see what some of you tried to figure out on this one. But it is meditate, muse, and mutter. Meditate, muse, and mutter. And then you might want to write next to that, think about the right things. Think about the right things. So Paul says, finally, brothers, these things are all applying to you, these other five exhortations, then do this, finally, at the end of, you know, I'm kind of drawing this, this list to an end. Whatever is true, whatever is lo- uh, uh, honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So, the next step in this action plan that Paul is giving us is that we must meditate on the right kind of things. We meditate and muse and mutter on the right kind of things. You know, just as good food is necessary for good physical health, so a good thought life, a good thought life is necessary for a good spiritual and mental health. And that's what he's talking about here, right? Because he's talking about thinking. Not feeling, thinking. Think on these things. So anxiety and and anger and despair and discontentment and all of those things that, you know, we face that, that we kind of drain all of our thoughts into if we're not careful. It all points to our human weakness and the evil influences in the world and and the things that might go wrong or how someone has wronged us and how we're going to get even with them, you know, all of those things. We have to stop thinking about those things. We have to think the right things. Isn't that what he's saying? Philippians 4.8 tells us that we are to focus our attention on things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, of excellence, and things that are worthy of praise. I'm not going to take the time to go through all those Greek words there, but it's pretty powerful when you actually look up these words, you know, that he's telling us to think about. But let me sum it up this way, that what those descriptions are telling us is that we're to think about everything in light of who God is. Get that? These are characteristics of God, really. He's a God of truth, purity. He is lovely. He is commendable. He is excellent. He is worthy of praise. All of these things. We should think of things in light of who the person of God is and, and, and what the scriptures tell us about him. And that's where we get the information that we need to think the right kind of things. Things that are in this list. And so I'm going to give you a list of verses. I'm going to read the verses. You don't need to look them up. Joel will probably bring them up for us. But I'm going to read through them real quickly. But there are a list of verses that we've looked at before. And, and they are just demonstrating the power and the necessity of us spending time in the Scriptures. So that we end up thinking the right kinds of things. Joshua 1.8 This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Uh, but, and, and the reason for that is so you'd be careful to do all that is written in it, and then you'll make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Or Psalm 1, 1 through 3 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the, in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor 
sits in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Hmm. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not weather, and all that he does he prospers. Now notice the th- what's going on in there. It's like you can either choose this path or you can choose this path, right? Think the right kind of thing. And then several verses out of Psalm 119, which is a psalm totally taken up with the word of God. Psalm 119, 14 through 16. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Wow. That's the importance of spending time in it. Verse 28. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. That's like, don't be anxious. Right? But, but think the right kinds of things and be thankful that God is addressing them. That's really the same thing. Verse 78. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. That's hard life. That's persecution, right? It's hard life coming towards us. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. So when hard stuff's coming, where do I go? I go to God's word. 92. If your law had not been my delight, I would have, been, I would have perished in my affliction. Looking at the reverse side. If I wouldn't have been in the word of God, I wouldn't have been able to face what came my way. Verses 97 and 98. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. Take it with us, and we'll be able to deal with the enemies, those that are persecuting us, the world that is against us, the evil one who is against us. 143. Trouble and anguish have found me out. (laughs) Does that sound like your life? Yes! Trouble and anguish have found me out. But your commandments are my delight. What a great contrast. Verse 161. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. Kind of a theme running through all those verses, isn't there? Jeremiah 15 and verse 16. Now, I love, love the chapter. Jeremiah is pouring out his heart to God in in chapter 15 of his book. And he's basically saying this, God, what's happened? Have you abandoned me? Have you become uh, like a a false stream to me? Everyone's against me. I don't know what to do. Life is hard. And where are you, God? And then it gets to verse 16. And this is what it says. Your words were found. And I ate them. and, And your words became... To me, a joy and delight of my heart, for I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. So what is that telling us? When life is hard, when you're, when you're wondering, God, where are you? Have you abandoned me? Turn the corner and find God's word. Open it up. Draw out what you've already put into your heart, the, the words that you've memorized from the scripture. Let God then strengthen you because if you'll focus on what the word is telling you it will tell you that God is good to you even when life is difficult because it essentially says you belong to God and that that is everything you belong to him I'm not going to do the Psalm 19 passage, Joe. I just uh, encourage you to write down Psalm 19, 7 through 14. Kind of a lengthy passage, but a, one that is so powerful about showing the benefits of the Word of God and how it changes our lives. And just one from the New Testament, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual service. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. To get that, don't be shaped or fashioned by the world's way of thinking and living, but rather be transformed 
changed from the inside out by virtue of your mind being changed. Well, where does that happen? In the Word of God. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to prove what the will of God is, that which is good, and that which is acceptable, and that which is pleasing to God. And a survey of seminary students, a discovery was made. An emotional, the emotional well-being of a person was not found to depend upon how long they have been Christians, but by how many years they had regularly meditated on the scriptures. Now, now think of this. This is people are going to seminary, get trained in the Word of God, and many of them to go into full-time ministry. This is where they did the survey, and it and it demonstrated it doesn't matter how, how long you've been a Christian. When you pray to receive Christ, it's how much time you've spent in the Word of God. If meditation on God's Word had been a vital part of their lives for at least three years, they were significantly happier and healthier. That makes absolute sense to me from my own experience. So Paul says that we are to think on these things. We are to consider them as true, as right, as good. And, and the word that he uses there for consider, uh, it, it kind of has the same meaning as the Old Testament word for meditate, which has the meaning of musing, pondering, or muttering. Well, this is significantly different than what people are used to today. Musing is almost forgotten practice, isn't it? Pondering something for any length of time is like, how do you do that? We can't even know how to do that anymore. Our, our society is fi fixated on what is amusing, right? Amusing, whether it's theme parks or TikTok video clips or, you know, advertising or, you know, almost anything. It is all short and non-thinking messages and even many seminaries teach their people learning how to preach. Don't do a sermon over 20 minutes because people cannot sit and meditate that long. So I guess I lost you about 25 minutes ago. That's just sad. That, that is incredibly sad. Of course we can muse and meditate and become a person who spends time thinking about God and how he wants us to live. So, you know, become a muser, become a meditator, and, 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 and yes, become a mutterer. I didn't say a murmurer. Become a mutterer, but mutter the right thoughts, those things that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and praiseworthy, those things that mark the character of God and should mark those who know him through faith in Jesus Christ. Last one. Give me a few more minutes. Don't chuckle. Don't chuckle at me like that. My wife is being cruel to me right now. If you're filling in your insert, just do it. We're borrowing from Nike this morning. Just do it. And then right alongside that, practice what you believe. Practice what you believe. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. The importance of examples, right? What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and notice the promise. And the God of peace will be with you. So after explaining how, you know, how the church and each individual believer is to think, he turns his attention to how, must they, how mu they must behave. And it's not enough just to think the right things. We must do the right things as well. And the Christian task is not just to, to think. It is to do. James 1.22 be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. 
So if you're only thinking on things and not doing them, you're deceiving yourself and you're telling yourself, well, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm thinking the right way. No, you've got to live the right way as well, and that's what he's saying. So when it comes down to it, we must be people who, because of the truth that God has revealed to us in his word, and we obey it. Even when life is difficult, even when life is screaming at us, telling us to fret and worry and to be angry and bitter and to get even. No. We must be people who not only know the truth, but we live the truth. We must be people who live not only by faith, not by sight. We must be people who live by faith and not by feeling. what this is all talking about in verses 6 and 7 and really in verse 5 uh, and verse 4 and verse 2 and 3 really is talking about the difference between living by feeling versus living by truth and faith and obedience but it's important to note it is and we're not alone in this I mean Paul puts that in. He notes that believers were to recall the things that they had seen and learned and watch him do. That They were then to practice those things. And I think that oftentimes when we're facing difficult things and struggling with difficult emotion in our circumstances, we begin to feel like we're all alone. Right? No one knows. No one knows the sorrows I've seen. No one knows. I don't remember the words to that song, but it expressed it well. I mean, that's how people think. No one else knows. I'm all alone. No, no, no. Now remember, the Lord is near, first of all. Secondly, know that others will be there with you. Because we stand firm together. And we live in unity together. And we rejoice together. And we're gentle with one another. And we... We, we trust God together. And we think through life as it should be thought through together. We're not alone. And what a great promise he ends with. The God of peace will be with you. So God not only gives us others to encourage us through difficult circumstances and hard emotions, he himself is there with us. And he will take us through the difficulty. He will quiet our hearts our minds, he will still the storm. And in the words of Isaiah 43, when we go through the fire, he'll be with us. When we go through the waters, he will not allow them to overwhelm us. Why? Because he's the one that holds back the waters. And he is the one who is a shield for us when the fires of difficulty come. But this is all great stuff, but it only belongs to the believer. That's why Paul describes unbelievers as those without hope. Because they're without God in the world. You know God, rejoice in him today for these wonderful truths. So Lord, we are thankful for your word, thankful for its encouragement and its instruction. We ask that we will be people, a people group, a church, family, that will be obedient to these things. And in doing so, we will honor our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We will bring glory to you, O God. Help us. We know we can't do it on our own, but thank you that you are with us. So help us. Come to our rescue, our aid. Strengthen us. All for the glory of your name.